You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert, Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. Total fertility rates worldwide have dropped by nearly 1% per year from 1960 to 2018. This is according to a new report in the Scientific American. The researcher stated, quote, when people hear of this, there's often a natural instinct to shrug it off, believing that 1% per year isn't really a big deal, but it adds up to more than 10% per decade and more than 50% over 50 years, unquote. There are a few things in our reality that are more important than this issue. We're talking about the rapid and shocking decrease in the ability of our species to reproduce. And even miscarriages have also been increasing by about 1% per year in the same time span, as well as a 1% decrease per year in testosterone and average sperm count. A recent meta-analysis published in the journal Human Reproduction Update found that sperm counts have declined by 50% in just 40 years. Something is severely wrong. We already know what it is. But many people are continuing to place their trust in the very same entities that are causing the problem and profiting from our collective suffering. Quote, big pharma and quote, big agriculture have raked in trillions of dollars feeding our citizens poison and then profiting mightily from treating the symptoms of the dysfunction and diseases caused by our stress and our poor diet. Not only are we not getting well, but virtually every chronic disease that was rare just 50 years ago has now reached epidemic proportions. On today's episode, we're going to dive in and break down how this rapid and shocking decline in our fertility rates here in the United States and really in the developing world period has been unfolding. We're going to look at testosterone and some of the secrets to helping to reverse this that shouldn't be secrets. And we're also going to look at some of the hidden influences that are impacting our hormones every single day that the average person is interacting with, again, unknowingly that's contributing to this issue. But most importantly, we're going to lean into empowerment and some of the things we can do that are clinically proven to optimize our hormone function and to improve our rates of fertility. This is information that we all need personally, but also extending this to our family members, to our extended family, to our community, and to our culture overall. Most people have no idea that this issue is going on because simultaneously, We've reached another landmark in our overall population, reaching 8 billion people here on planet Earth. So it's just, how is fertility going down when that's happening simultaneously? And a big part of that story is the extended lifespan we've been seeing. So there are more people that are just sticking around. However, even that, just a few years ago, our growing lifespan that has been going up each and every year, each decade has now reversed. For the first time in documented human history, the most recent generation is going to be the first to not outlive our predecessors. And so the potential here is seeing a rapid and shocking decline in our overall population if we don't become aware of this issue and also start to implement things so we can help to protect our bodies, protect our biology, turn the situation around, and most importantly, again, to get our citizens empowered. So I'm very, very excited about this episode. We've got one of the most brilliant people in this field on for us today to really help us to dive into these issues 
And so get ready because this is going to be an absolutely mind-blowing episode. Now, one of the most important inputs for our testosterone, and this is also something we do touch on in this episode, but to just expand on it a little bit more, this was published in the Asian Journal of Andrology. They found that testosterone is not subject to circadian variation in the same way that cortisol is or other hormones, where they're just getting produced at certain times and when we're healthy and things are synced up, it is what it is. Testosterone was found to have a very sleep-dependent nature. And in fact, the researchers called it a sleep-dependent factor in producing testosterone itself. They found that testosterone remains elevated for the duration of sleep. Then the subsequent decrease in testosterone depends on how long we're awake. Essentially, testosterone decreases more and more the longer that we are awake. When we go to sleep, we're plugging into a testosterone refilling station. All right, we're getting it topped off if we're getting adequate amounts of sleep. But again, as we're up, walking around, just doing the life thing, the testosterone is just going down further and further. However, there, of course, there are implements that we can do in our waking hours to help to nudge along testosterone, but there is nothing more remarkable than our sleep quality for our testosterone levels. In fact, if you want a real-world example of what can happen when we're not getting adequate sleep, a study that was published in 2011 in the Journal of the American Medical Association confirmed that even young men who are sleep-deprived over the course of just one week, getting five hours per night over the course of just one week study period, their testosterone levels plummeted by up to 15%. Now that might not sound like a lot, but the researchers equated that to your testosterone levels dropping as if you were suddenly 10 to 15 years older. So again, we're talking about sleep and testosterone and fertility and overall metabolic health. This is no joke. It's something important for us to put some more focus into. Obviously having a great evening routine and healthy sleep inputs are incredible. There are also things we could do with our nutrition. And I really love in my kind of evening wind down practice to have a cup of Rishi tea. And this was because research that was published in pharmacology, biochemistry, and behavior found that Rishi is able to significantly decrease sleep latency, meaning we fall asleep faster, increase our overall sleep time, and also increase sleep efficiency by improving our non REM and our REM sleep. Pretty remarkable. Again, it's been utilized for thousands of years. Now we have new clinical efficacy on the benefits of reishi mushroom. But you need to make sure that it's dual extracted. This is important. And this is going to be coming exclusively from Four Sigmatic. Go to foursigmatic.com forward slash model. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash model. Get 10% off the incredible reishi elixir. They also have a really nice reishi hot cacao. All organic ingredients, tasty, super delicious, and helps to get this incredible source of nutrition into our bodies. And so, also, again, just a huge fan of the way that they do things because they do a dual extraction of the medicinal mushrooms hot water extract, alcohol extract to make sure we're getting all of these compounds that can improve our sleep, but also our waking performance as well. Head over there to foursigmatic.com forward slash model for 10% off store wide. Now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled Number One Source to a Healthy Lifestyle by Amber Drysdale. Listening to you for several years and you still put out the most top-rated material time and again. Easy, accessible information for our health and wellness backed up by scientific research and practical tools that you can implement in everyday living. 
love, love, love this podcast. Sean's voice and humor are so enjoyable, coupled with his extensive knowledge and background. I'm able to learn from him effortlessly and share it with others. Incredible. Thank you so much for leaving that review over on Apple Podcasts. Man, that means everything. I truly, truly do appreciate that. And if you yet to do so, please pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for the Model Health Show. And on that note, let's get to our special guest and topic of the day. Our guest today is Mike Mutzel, and he earned his Bachelor's of Science in Biology from Western Washington University in 2006 and completed his Master's in Clinical Nutrition from the University of Bridgeport in 2015. He's also a graduate of the Institute for Functional Medicine, and he's been applying these functional medicine technologies into his clinical practice. And in addition to his clinical work, he's also a best-selling author and one of the most incredible teachers right now on metabolic health. And again, we're going to dive in right now and talk about metabolic health in association with our hormone health and fertility rates. And again, this is incredibly important information that every single person should know. So let's dive into this conversation with the amazing Mike Mutzel. We've got one of my favorite people in the health and fitness space, Mike Mutzel, back here in the studio. Thanks for having me, bud. It's always great to be with you. Yeah, my guy, man. You just, again, I was just sharing this off camera, you know, just, just your ability to analyze data, to perspective take, to look at things from multiple sides. It's, it's really a gift, man. Thank you. And I'm so grateful for that. You sent over some data recently on something that should have everybody's eyes open wide, which is declining fertility rates. Now, ironically, we just passed 8 billion people here on planet Earth. So it's just, there's, there's this counter story, counter narrative happening because again, we've seen this really notable decrease in fertility on many levels. So today I want to talk about that yeah. and also talk about one of the contributing factors, which is a plummeting in our testosterone levels. So let's dive in, let's talk about it. Yeah. I mean, it's so concerning. You know, we were kind of joking offline. If the change in fertility that we're now seeing the decline in humans was happening in bears or cats, you know, animal activists would be all over this. But because it's happening in humans, it, it, it's, it's like people just say, oh, it's like it's normal. It's becoming normalized. Um, I mean, I'm sure you have friends or people that you know who have tried to have kids in their late 20s and early 30s. I would say majority of the time now, these people have to go to fertility clinics to get help, whether it's on the female side or the male side. And I know we're going to probably talk about birth control and low T and all these things. But for me, it's pretty concerning. I mean, we both have kids, so we care about the future of our world. And um, yeah, it's really concerning. So, you know, these numbers get thrown around in terms of like when uh, human beings will no longer have functioning sperm and so forth. And a recent, it was a BBC article just a few days ago found estimated by 2050 sperm motility is going to be like zero percent so majority of the human species will be infertile at that point which is absolutely insane so um we can talk about the persistent organic pollutants endocrine disruptors which i think are a big one i think birth control use in women starting at an early age when they're teenagers mm -hmm. it's tanking testosterone and that's impacting then um fetal growth development so there's so many factors but What's cool about the science is the research clearly shows that it's modifiable. It's our environment. And when we make small changes with sleep that you talk a lot about, with nutrition, with exercise, we can talk about DHEA, uh, detox, sauna, all of these things, they have a powerful influence on fertility and testosterone levels. So it's scary on the one hand. On the other hand, it's modifiable, which is really important. Let's talk about one of these really interesting 
inputs, which is new for our species, which is the, the chemical compounds in our personal care products, in the air that we're breathing, you know, from, you know, various factories. And let's talk about that. And how is that affecting our hormone? Yeah, that's a good point. So all, most of these persistent organic pollutants or EDCs, endocrine disrupting chemicals, they mimic or bind to the estrogen receptor in the body. And they also can augment sex hormone binding globulin. So if you think about your hormones, they're sort of driving around on the seat of a bus on binding globulins or albumin. And that's how these persistent organic pollutants impact that. They also impact the brain to gonad connection. So up at the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal gonad axis. So they're impacting our hormones in a, in a negative way all throughout the body. And particularly when we're exposed to these in utero, like if mom or dad, so uh, parental nutrition before conception is really important. You know, I think as society, we put a lot of onus on moms. Oh, mom has to detox. Mom has to get healthy. And dad's over there smoking cigarettes and, and drinking whiskey. It's really important for both parents to um, improve their diet lifestyle before they even think about having kids. But yeah, unfortunately, these, these things are everywhere, Sean. Um, even some of the clothing that we buy at the grocery store, they put flame retardants in them. Our children are playing with stuffed animals and so forth, and they have endocrine disrupting chemicals. And so these things are everywhere and it's not to create this fear mongering message. It's that we need to minimize the exposure because we know they're everywhere. So you talk a lot about food and you have an upcoming book that's going to be amazing. So obviously there's the um, environmental working group, ewg.org, great resource for people just to know, especially now with food prices being so expensive, expensive, which foods should be a like it's a non negotiable should be organic strawberries, raspberries, those are things that are heavily sprayed because bugs love them. Mm. Cauliflower, broccoli, but I've tried to grow cauliflower. All I attracted was a bunch of bugs, like mm. forget it, right? Cause I'm not using like, you know, herbicides. So those I think are really important for people to minimize their exposure to. Another non-negotiable is filtered water for the family, the household, because commercial water is now tainted with industry runoff, which this is crazy. There's this book called Fateful Harvest, I don't know if you've heard about it. I'll send, I'll send you a copy as a Christmas gift. You're, you're going to dig this book. Have you heard this story before? I haven't. All right. So this is, this is the craziest thing that I, and this book has been out for about 20 years. So companies that are making like aluminum smelter plants and these companies that are, you know, using industrial chemicals, it's very expensive for them to dispose of them in an environmentally friendly way. Mm -hmm. So they thought, okay, well, what if we just sell these or pay fertilizer companies to take this stuff? And sort of dilute it so when they're spraying the fertilizer that they have to spray in the land anyway it's perfectly legal for them to literally sell arsenic lead mercury cadmium atrazine and to put it in fertilizer wow so this stuff even if you're getting potatoes or it, that's non-organic it could have levels of cadmium mercury and so forth that are way higher than we would ever be considered healthy but there's this little loophole so i think we really need to start becoming more connected with our food. Go to the farmer's market as a family with your kids, get your kid involved, maybe get a little garden bed in the backyard and try to grow it yourself a little bit. But so the point is we're constantly exposed and we need to be detoxing every day. Um, exercise moves our muscles, it moves our lymph, our body's sort of garbage system. Uh, sweating is really good. So going in a sauna, doing hot yoga, um, just hanging out on the beach, you know, we all, we feel good on vacation. Part of that might be the sun. Yeah, but we're sweating. We're getting rid of these compounds. So, um, 
they're really disruptive. And I don't want to get too much into the details, but I think this is an important point because people say, ah, it's just a little, might come on, it's just a little uh, cosmetics or lotion. It's like a small amount. And it's the dose that makes the poison that people say. But as I mentioned, in our body, we have thyroid hormone, we have testosterone, we have estrogen, but those are bound to binding globulins, either albumin or sex hormone binding globulin. When we get these things, the parabens, the BPA and so forth, they're free floating. They're not, they're, they adhere to what's called nonlinear pharmacokinetics. So they're just floating around, hitting the estrogen receptor or hitting progesterone receptors. And so it's not so much about, well, it's just a small amount because they, again, they, they're not required or they're just how the function of which they're not bound to these binding globulins. They're not on the bus like testosterone or estrogen is. And so I think that's important for people to recognize that even if you're getting trace amounts in cosmetics or in food packaging, fast food packaging is another big no-no because of all the slippery stuff in there, coffee cups, disposable coffee cups. Ooh. I know it sounds nerdy, but like bring your own coffee cup or ask for the for here mug if you're going to have coffee out. One study recently found they quantified how much microplastics is in a cup of coffee delivered hot from like a commercial coffee place. It's in the orders of millions of pieces of microplastic because you have that hot liquid. There's that kind of slippery lining inside the cup that's getting into your water. And those, again, those little pieces of microplastic are going around hitting the estrogen receptor, binding up your hormones. Um, stimulating growth, you know, with regards to estrogen receptor binding. So this stuff is, it's real, it's scary. That's bananas. That's going to hit a lot of people in their, in their daily gel right there. Um, wow, that is fascinating. And here's the thing, again, this is, all of this stuff has been normalized, but it's new. It's, these are newly invented habits that we've taken on. It's just, again, to take a step back and really analyze things. And when you talked about pesticides, this is particularly pervasive in our culture and the pesticide itself, side means to kill, by the way. And what we're doing it when we have a rodenticide or an insecticide or herbicide, it's the intention is to kill this pest of some sort. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of the, the tons and tons and tons, you know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands, millions of tons that are pumped into our environment. They're either to disrupt the nervous system of the pest, or being neurogenic or having those kind of qualities to them or estrogenic, right? So disrupting the reproductive cycle of the, of the pest, mm. right? So disruption to the brain and nervous system so they can't reproduce or so they die, just outright kill them or making it so they can't reproduce, right? And the thing is about us too, as you know, like stuff kind of bioaccumulates in our tissues, especially if our body isn't really apt to eliminate these things. Our body does the best that it can. As a matter of fact, it might use our fat tissue as a little bit of a trash can. Mm -hmm. Well, there's this whole, yeah, like this whole field known as this contamination theory of obesity. So you talk a lot of, and over the show with interviews and podcasts and so forth, calories in, calories out. There's a carbohydrate insulin model of obesity. There's these different models and paradigms to explain the obesity epidemic. And so scientists are saying, well, hold up. Both of those models are kind of flawed calories in, calories out, and also the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity. What about this contamination theory? Because as it turns out, there's a saying, the solution for pollution is dilution. So if you can dilute the toxins, that's why, you know, if we have food poisoning, we have diarrhea, right? Your body's dumping water, trying to get rid of whatever is in your gut. Well, what if all this obesity that we're seeing now in children, 
Even the obesity epidemic is hitting dogs and household pets. So how could you really explain that with just calories in, calories out, or carbohydrate insulin model? So this contamination theory of obesity model is explaining or sort of characterizing how these environmental chemicals are changing. We talked about hormones, but the adipocyte, the fat cell, and the sort of genetic uh, metabolomic aspects of the fat cell are being augmented with these, these chemicals and stored within them, within the lipid droplets, which is like the functional unit of the fat cell. And to me, that's, I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of empowering because some people say, look, I'm eating really well. I'm, we've heard these stories, like you get DMs all the time about this. It's like, well, what else could it be? It could be your hormones and, or it could be persistent organic pollutants, endocrine disrupting chemicals. So I think that should be another proxy that people should look at and consider. And there's a blood biomarker, uh, the category of test liver function tests. Most of the time, doctors will just run two of the three, AST and ALT, right? These are the common uh, ones, but there's a third one called GGT. And this is not esoteric. Any physician or naturopathic doctor runs these all day long. GGT uh, is increased when there's a need for more glutathione production and churning of and creating more glutathione within the cell, it starts to increase. And so in alcoholics, when you're drinking a lot of ethanol, glutathione is needed to help combat some of that toxin uh, from ethanol. But it's also been shown to increase with people who have high exposure to these endocrine disrupting chemicals. So if people are wondering, what's my body burden of this? You know, if they're kind of curious, next time they do their annual physical, they can look at their liver function tests and make sure the doctor includes GGT because it's frequently neglected for whatever reason. A GGT over 30 has been shown to correlate. It doesn't mean it's directly causative, but it's correlated with higher body exposure to these compounds. Again, PCBs, phthalates, BPA, uh, microplastics, and some of the cosmetic parabens and things of that sort. So that's a good way to sort of figure out. Also, if people have body odors, you know, if they go to the gym and they smell really bad, they start to sweat. Some of that um, sounds weird, but the excretion of that could be linked to buildup of these chemicals in the mm -hmm. body. Um, for example, I stopped wearing deodorant back in 2016. Um, and at first I noticed like a, a nasty smell, but I've been a big part of my lifestyle is sauna therapy <laughs> and you're sweating a ton. And in that sweat, you're getting releasing lead, cadmium, mercury, all the heavy metals, plus these persistent organic pollutants. So mm. I think it's a good thing to sweat. Make sure people sweat every day. Yeah. And by the way, fun fact, my guy's not funky. All right. And this is person to person yeah. uh, analysis here. You know, this is possible. It's just like, again, what did humans do prior? But this also speaks to the interaction with those things in the microbes mm -hmm. that we're carrying. Right. And, and also the loss of species and how all this stuff is getting processed. You just brought up a really important point, which is the health of our organs is going to, and just our cell, cellular function overall, but to be able to, quote, detoxify these compounds and process them to get them out of our system. If our organs aren't healthy, if our liver's not healthy, if our lymphatic system isn't functioning properly. And so this goes right back to your initial point, which was, I was like, why is he mentioning sauna therapy specifically, like repeatedly? Because it's such a great tool for you to use one of your largest organs of excretion to help your body to process and get this stuff out of your system. Because your body is always trying to find a safe way to manage things. We're, our bodies are intelligent, but part of the problem I think is we think our bodies are stupid. Like why are you stupid, you know, blood sugar, why are you doing this? It's the input, it's the adaptation. When you have insulin resistance, your body is adapting to 
abnormal conditions, disfavorable conditions to keep you alive. It's changing the way that it functions, it's pivoting like, okay, I keep getting this exposure, I'm gonna operate like this. And so helping to create conditions to where we detoxify these things. And by the way, I gotta mention this because this is what this episode is really about. We talk about the declining fertility rates. This was published in the, the Scientific American and they were looking at fertility rates from 1960 to 2018. And they found that total fertility rates worldwide have dropped nearly 1% per year since 1960. Wow. Here's a direct quote from them. When people hear this, there's often a natural instinct to shrug it off, believing that 1% per year isn't really a big deal, but it adds up to more than 10% per decade and more than 50% over 50 years, unquote. This is where we're at with fertility rates dropping. Mm -hmm. We're talking 50% in the last couple of decades. That's insanity. That's insane. Like I said, I mean, if this was happening to squirrels, people would be outraged, but- Save the squirrels. Yeah. <laughs> It's wild, a um, lot to unpack right there, but you, you brought up something that, that I wanted to mention and that's the microbiome. So another mechanism, we talked about hormones. These microplastics, they disrupt both the gut barrier and the ecology of our gut microbiome. And so that's another big aspect. I mean, how many people do we know that have digestive issues? They have asthma, allergies, gut-related complications of dysbiosis or leaky gut. So exposure to that um, is, is unfortunately, that's another mechanism. And so we need to be aware of where are we getting these things from? I mentioned food packaging, big one, antibiotic residues and pesticide residues in the food itself. So the organic farm to table um, sort of approach is really good. And then the cookware, a lot of people don't think about this. Um, you know, I, I go to Airbnbs when I travel, I was just actually at one this morning and I was like, all right, if I was going to make eggs in this Airbnb, there's this Teflon pan with all these scrapes in it, you know, mm -hmm. so that Teflon um, it does have aluminum and aluminum is linked with Alzheimer's, but it also has these, these perfluoro compounds. I think PHA is one and PHA, there's a bunch of these long names. Um, the perfluoros are really problematic. They're what's also in the flame retardants, which is also in, unfortunately, our furniture. Um, it's in clothing now, but we want to make sure that we're cooking our food in like stainless steel or cast iron skillets and not cooking. What you don't want is heat and plastic together. And that's why we mentioned the microplastic in the yeah. coffee cups. That's what is going to leach these things out. And so it's important that um, if you do get takeout, you know, don't warm it up in the microwave, put it on a plate and then warm it up or, or put your food into a cast iron skillet or a stainless steel thing so that you're not absorbing those or in increasing the absorption. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big marketing ploy is the microwavable. Like mm -hmm. we want that, you know, but that convenience it's essentially, it's a, it's a deadly convenience, especially when we're talking about long-term effects of keeping our species here on the planet. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about the, this side with testosterone, because you also had a really great recent study on walking mm -hmm. and how that can affect our testosterone. Let's talk about that. Yeah, no, so important. So the it, it's impossible to disentangle the decline in fertility with the commensurate decline in testosterone this is they're totally related uh in both men and women actually so fertility is is impacted by testosterone in, in both genders but yeah the a recent analysis in 102,000 people in uh, israel men over the past 16 years found testosterone levels and this is it's important to recognize this age and obesity independent right Mm -hmm. that there was a 37% decline in testosterone levels of men in their reproductive years. So men between the ages of like, of like 15 and 30, 
So that's a almost a 50% drop, 37%. And I think it's important for people to recognize, you know, sometimes when we speak of testosterone, there's this association with like toxic masculinity and this. We're not promoting that. We're promoting health. For men, testosterone is linked with muscle mass. If you don't have muscle mass, where's the glucose that you're having in your kombucha gonna go? Like muscle is a major glucose sponge. It's where 80% of post-meal glucose is deposited in muscle. Muscle's what's going to help you get out of bed when you're older. Muscle's gonna help, your heart is a muscle. So if you don't have healthy muscle, you don't have a healthy life for both men and women. And so I think this is really important. Um, low testosterone levels are linked with Alzheimer's, dementia, uh, in men as they go, get older, cardiovascular disease, all-cause mortality. Yeah. So it's impossible to disentangle healthy, normal testosterone levels from health. And again, we're seeing this massive decline. And I think part of it, of course, is the environment. Uh, a big part of it is obesity and so forth. But there is this other sort of what factor. What is it in the literature? Because again, there's this obesity independent effect. Yeah. All that being said, obese people, diabetic people, people who unfortunately suffer from chronic diseases like sleep apnea uh, and, and sleep disorder breathing have lower testosterone levels um, than, than people who don't. But as you talked about, a simple fix that all of us should be striving for is just walking, both men and women. But this study found, I wanna say it was like 400 men, or maybe it was more like a thousand in that ballpark. The study just came out uh, in the summer of this year found that men who walk north of 8,000 steps per day, and they controlled for all these other variables in the statistical analysis, have higher levels of testosterone compared to men who don't walk uh, 8,000 steps per day. And there's like a linear progressive stepwise increase. Mm -hmm. So let's say one day you only walk 4,000, but tr try to get at least 8,000 steps per day. And mechanistically, they don't know why that is. Is it because walking is linked with less belly fat, better insulin sensitivity? Who cares? But the point is that you need to walk, you know? And that being said, there was another study that just came out in 329,000 people, and they looked at all sorts of diseases and found, again, walking is one of the, the best ways to prevent obesity, hypertension, sleep apnea, type 1 and type 2 diabetes. There was Depression was a big one. Um, so again, people who walk between eight and 10,000 steps per day have a significantly lower chance of developing the, the most common conditions and ailments that people go to the doctor for. So it's like, how many physicians are writing a prescription? Hey, Sally, I know you have sleep apnea. I know you're depressed. I know you're obese. Here, walk 10,000 steps per day. But literally the scientific research in 320, this wasn't like 30 people, 329,000 people in this particular study and it was published in Nature. So yeah, I think, you know, my general rule is space out the walking as well. So 2,000 steps before breakfast, which is doable. Even if you have kids, bring your kid with you. Like mm -hmm. my daughter and I, we walk to school and she loves it. She's talking, dad, dad, you mm -hmm. know, um, yeah. it's just great. You're, you're in training your body circadian clock system, getting light into the retina, all of that. Um, and so just space it out, do 3,000, you know, or sorry, 2,000 before breakfast. And, you know, after lunch is a good time to walk especially if people feel that post-meal kind of lethargy and they get tired. Part of that is the reactive hypoglycemia. Blood sugar goes up, insulin goes up, and then blood sugar goes down and you feel lethargic. And so a great way to sort of blunt that is just to take a walk. Mm, wow. You just said it, man. You know, this being prescribed is, for me at this point, it's negligent. It's pure negligent. Because how many studies do we need to affirm? Like your genes expect you to walk. Your DNA requires you to do this movement. It's what we're designed to do. Right. And so if you can give a prescriptive thing like, hey, if your doctor prescribes you 4,000 steps, 
Like that carries so much more weight psychologically for people today. Mm. But we have this, this, this knee jerk reaction where we say, oh, well, they won't do it anyways. Right. This is the, this is the problem. And it, unfortunately it becomes integrated into the culture with physicians and they, they start to parrot that to themselves that, you know, I advise them to diet, to eat good and exercise, but they just don't listen. So I write this prescription for a drug. Mm. When in reality, it is your job to help to find that psychological pathway to inspiring them to do the thing. That's the best use of your time. But unfortunately, the field is not trained in that and it's structured in a way where you don't even have the time to do it if you wanted to. And so what we have is a system of sick care where we're just churning out incredibly sick people and creating this false belief that we're living longer when in fact we're dying longer. We're just extending people's suffering. And so this input, by the way, so with this, I was just thinking like, how does this impact testosterone so mightily? One of them is the opposite of the testosterone tanking because of our epidemic level of sedentary behavior in our culture today, right? So that is anti-testosterone. The lymphatic system, which you mentioned earlier, and being able, like walking is the, the best thing for your lymphatic system. There's nothing even close, right. you know? And then also bone health. There's this correlation with our bone health and sexual function and testosterone as well. And this here, this is the one. And I don't think I've ever even said this term on the show, but in, in this context with this, but you walking is an environmental signal. It's an environmental signal that you are a person of vitality. You're a person that needs the hormones to be able to do this task. You're somebody who's functioning and adding to society. All these ancient programs in our genes that say this person needs this juice because they're out here living and adding to humanity with those steps. They're walking towards something. Let me assist. If you're not doing that, why would life give it to you? Mm, beautifully said. I think it's a great way to reframe that. And of course, also, um, if we think about these sexual organs, they depend upon a healthy cardiovascular system. You know, to get an erection, it's 100% contingent upon you know, vascular health, like ED, erectile dysfunction is linked with endothelial dysfunction, which you, you talked a lot about on the show. The endothelium, of course, is the functional unit of your vessels. And walking is so good for the endothelium, for the heart, for the cardiovascular system, uh, especially in the postman window. Um, because, you know, eating is, we all love eating. We all love food. It's a mild stressor. You know, eating raises cortisol. E eating raises um, counter-regulatory hormones. And so if you can walk and mitigate that, um, that's such a, a good way. So in the post-meal window, that's just a good reminder. And it's just like a habit. A lot of us get in the habit of like, okay, I'm going to eat dinner and then watch Netflix, right? Get in the habit of, all right, fam, we're gonna eat dinner and then we're going for a walk. And trust me, your kids will, unless it's raining and there's a bunch of snow, most kids love it. My daughter now, we get the dog out and we're walking, she's talking, she's running. So it, it, make it a family thing. Yeah. And yeah, kids are not walking that much. Unfortunately, now, oh, man, so. and that's why we've seen, of course, obesity in children has tripled since 1980, which is not an accident. This is again, we're creating a culture of sedentary behavior, and I can affirm this same point because it might seem, especially if the family culture isn't such where, or we might fall into a window where we're not getting out and being active together, and so it's just a little bit more of a pull to quote talk our family members into doing a thing. Without fail, when we're walking together, my youngest son and I, this is when he is the most talkative. This is when he's sharing the most 
of what's going on in his life, these ideas. And we also, I found a creative input for him, like, which for him was, you know, just a couple of years ago, if we can walk and he brings a weapon with him. Mm, nice. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not talking about like yeah, a switchblade yeah. or whatever, but like his little like ninja bow staff or like a sword or something. And like, he's just out there like doing his ninja moves or whatever. And he's talking to me and telling me all the things going on in his, in his incredibly growing mind. And so again, but we get to create the culture and these, our devices are so attractive, you know? So him gaming with his friends, like, and getting into that mental loop, it can be difficult, but we gotta be aware of this. And we can bake in this movement. Like mm. you've baked it in to walking your daughter to school each day. That is so amazing. So it's amazing. fun, she likes it. And then this is where I think wearables can be helpful, you know, like getting a little Fitbit for your kid. And we did that. And so she's always telling me, dad, I got 10,000 steps, I got 12,000. So I think that is helpful for people so that they can enumerate or quantify this and then they have a something to strive for we all need goals and we need benchmarks and if you just say hey look i'm going to commit to walking 10,000 steps per day then what you're going to do is like if you if you haven't maybe it's eight o'clock and you have to go run to target for some toilet paper you're probably will park your car a little bit further away and then you'll get in an extra 400 steps and that might not sound significant but if you do that a few times throughout the day that's an extra 2k or 3k and again we're just moving and so i think like you said um stimulating the muscle throughout the day as well telling the muscle hey and and every time we move muscles we release these hormones called myokines and they go into our brain they affect memory cognition one study in 2021 found that myokines from weightlifting actually tells the fat cells to release stored lipids so they help directly burn fat so there's so many benefits and we just need to reshape our habits that's all it comes down to is just make just committing to this I know it's January is coming up and I think a lot of people will be like, okay, what can I do? I'm going to go to the gym and do 45 minutes of cardio. It's probably better to do three 50 minute walks as opposed to just hammering out 45 minutes. So that's what I encourage people to do is just break this up throughout the day. Mm, I love it. I love it. And also we're looking at it through the lens of not just physical outward appearance of fitness, but functionality and health. Yeah. So tying all that together, because that's really at the end of the day, that's what it's really all about. We do have these superficial metrics today more than ever again because of social media. But ironically, while we might have that, we also have the sickest, most sedentary and obese society we've ever had. You know, So there's this little pocket of window and showing people what you're not doing and what you can't be and all this stuff when we get into this hyper-glamorized thing with physical fitness. Now, not to say that we can't be inspired and have something to strive for, but I think sometimes, depending on our mental state, we can disempower us when we're looking at it, depending on, our, again, this even gets into our health coming into going on these apps mm -hmm. and it creates this learned helplessness or like, I'm never, I'm not the type of person that can do that or uh, I'm, I don't have the willpower or I don't have what it takes to have this you know, um, consistency or discipline. We create this narrative that moves us further and further away. So I highly encourage you to follow Mike on social media with these empowering messages. And also these are things that are doable. That's the thing. When you share 8,000 steps, like, and we, again, but we, we can still have our stories around how it's not possible, but instead of walking our kid to school in the morning, how about after we pick them up or when they get home off the bus, like you mm -hmm. guys meet first thing, go for a walk together, you know? So our from myself and my, my youngest son, I'll pick him up, we'll go right to baseball practice or batting cages, or we'll go to do some field work, or, you know, I just kind of find ways to bake it in. 
Totally. You know, because when everything was shut down, it changed the dynamics where, okay, well, right after the school, quote, school time, we get on, we get outside on the block. This is physical fitness time. Like we're going to do some stuff. We're going to run some, you know, some, um, football patterns, you know what I'm saying? You're going to need you to run a slant, have your friend run, you know, an in, and we're just going to get out here and create ways to, to have fun, to interact. Now, the question is you live somewhere where it can get a little nippy, right? This is but true. There are places they got 18 feet of snow yeah. right now. What about during the cold weather? Mike, what do we do as an alternative? It's, it's a great question, Sean. I was just in New York this weekend and it was super cold. Um, I think you got to embrace it. You know, there's something to actually being in the cold weather and being outdoors that um, has some benefits. So invest in a jacket, just go outside and do it the best you can. Um, because when the weather is cold like that and people stay inside, they get depressed, you know, mm-hmm. and then their circadian rhythms get all screwed up and then they're on screens. So I think we need to just learn to embrace it. And like you talked about, you know, with walking and you're, you're telling your body, like you are a person of purpose, of meaning and vital. If you're not out embracing the cold and if you can't tolerate any cold, that's a sign that you're missing some resilience. I mean, I know that might sound harsh, but, you know, um, I have family members who grew up in London, you know, in, in the UK, um, long, long time ago, 56 years ago. And you just, they didn't have central heating. They had, had in, in houses back then, I might describe this a little wrong, um, but there was no like furnace, right? What was in the middle of the house was like this, this sort of tube where it was on fire, so to speak. And then, so if, if you were, if your bedroom happened to be, if you have multiple siblings and your bedroom happened to be away from the central of the house, like you just had to tough it out. And we're so uh, acclimated to saying, Alexa, turn on the heat or, you know, Siri, turn on the, turn on the air conditioning. But this temperature fluctuation. You know, you just turn some people's stuff on right now. I know people are like, what (laughs) TV is going on. So yeah, I think it's really important for people to recognize it. Like having some variability in temperature, which also, by the way, if we look about where the most obese people are in the U S it's in the, the sort of the South where, um, you know, in the winter there's heat and in the summer there's air conditioning. And so there is this lack of thermal stress. It's an adaptive stressor that is helpful for people. So embrace it the best you can, you know. Thermal stress, that's another key word for today. You know, lack of that, which it's the ability of our bodies to adjust. And if we just live in this so-called perfect little pocket of comfortability, that's not normal, right. you know. And if, not to say we can't have times of, of comfort and being, you know, nice and cozy and all the things. But there's so much to be said for resilience, especially today, to build up our stress resilience. And you find it bleeds over into every other part of our lives, making us more resilient against, you know, fill in the blank. Now, but what about when we got the 18 feet of snow? Can we do, how about, can we throw on a Shanti workout video at home and do it with the kids? I think so, for sure. Or go snowshoeing, right? Go skiing. Like if people live in that environment, like become one with your environment. I think that's a, that's something that we also don't do. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you live in Wyoming or Montana, a lot of those people will cross country ski or, or go put on, get some snowshoes and do some things like that. I think, you know, that would be a good, find a winter activity that you enjoy. You know, um, it could be gardening, it could be housework and, and whatever. Um, but one thing that I wanted to mention, because some people will say, well, I have bad knees, you know, so I can't walk. I have osteoarthritis, Mike, like 10,000, 8,000 steps, there's no way. Well, osteoarthritis is actually a metabolic disease. There's a lot of research to show this. So people with achy knees, achy hips, when you start to become more metabolically healthy, you have more leptin sensitivity. You reduce your levels of leptin 
And it's been shown that when people lose weight, the arthritis in their hands goes away. You're like, well, how could that be? People are not doing handstand walking. They're walking on their feet, right? Well, part of that is because their inflammatory tone has decreased because they're more leptin sensitive. So as people become healthier by way of walking, their arthritis symptoms will improve. So again, the people that have that perceived hiccup or that, you know, they're saying, hey, I can't do this because my knees, your health will improve because you're moving more synovial fluid in those joints. You're lubricating the joints. And by becoming more metabolically healthy, losing the fat, guess what? There's less inflammation there. So it doesn't hurt as much. And lastly, um, a lot of people uh, recognize that Steve Jobs was an amazing entrepreneur and innovator. He took his meetings walking. You know, instead of just sitting around, I like going out to dinner, going to lunch with people, but sometimes with my friends, I'm like, Hey, let's meet at the beach and go for a walk. You know, let's walk and talk. And this, you know, if you look at one of the pivotal people in the last 50 years who have changed the course of humanity, uh, with iPhones and technology, all those meetings, m many of them were done walking. So there's some, that creative process is stimulated. So a lot of us are working from home, doing zoom meetings and this take the zoom meeting when you're out and walk, you know? just wear an earpiece or get a, get a set of headphones. So, yeah, yeah. It's again, there's, there's so many different places through our day where we can bake it in. Right. So that's my tendency is if my phone rings and I get on a call, I just, I start walking, I just pick it up and I, I walk, I go outside and, you know, also it's probably a little bit more um, quiet than yeah. inside of my house as well, you know, but, you know, just finding creative ways to, to implement more movement into your life. That's the overall mission and just yeah. take a step at a time, literally. You know, literally, got a quick break coming up. We'll be right back. We're knocking on the door of a complex cold and flu season. We're probably gonna wanna skip out on popular cough medicines. Here's the ingredients in one of the most popular conventional cough medicines, FDNC Blue One. FDNC Red 40. Flavor? High fructose corn syrup, propylene glycol, saccharin sodium. Do any of these things speak health? These conventional cough syrups are the very definition of taking poison that's glamorized as medicine. Whereas we have real sustainable, time-tested things that we can turn to. A randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled study revealed that honey, high-quality honey, was able to outperform a placebo and significantly reduce cough frequency and severity at night, and even improve sleep quality. When it comes to cough syrup, my family uses Beekeepers Naturals. Try their incredible propolis cough syrup today. Make sure that it's in your cabinet for when you need it. It's also naturally powered with immune supporters like pure buckwheat honey, elderberry, chaga mushroom, bee propolis, and olive leaf extract. And speaking about one of those other ingredients, a double-blind placebo-controlled study published in the peer-reviewed journal Advances in Traditional Medicine, found that after 48 hours of treatment with elderberry, coughing was relieved in 31% of patients versus the placebo. The study also noted significantly reduced fever, headache, muscle aches, and nasal congestion within just 24 hours of utilizing elderberry. Beekeeper's propolis cough syrup contains no drugs, no dyes, no dirty chemicals, or refined sugar. Head over right now to beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model. You get 25% off, automatically taken off at checkout. Go to B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S naturals.com forward slash model for again, 25% off. 
of their incredible propolis cough syrup and also their superfood honey and i'm a huge fan of their propolis spray especially for the immune system go to beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model for 25 percent off and now back to the show let's circle back with testosterone because we're not just at the mercy of this. So we've already talked about some proactive things that we can do. And actually this ties in a little bit too. You mentioned osteoarthritis, but we also have rheumatoid arthritis, which mm-hmm. is the autoimmune flavor that we're looking at here and the interaction with gut health and our microbiome and how that can lead into molecular mimicry and you know the kind of onset of autoimmune conditions and symptoms. I want to talk a little bit more about the microbiome here because it's not just our human cells that we're reproducing, right? It's our microbes as well. And having healthy microbial communities, whereas today we have a lot of species that have gone extinct mm-hmm. or they're on the endangered species list, right? But nobody's advocating for them either. They're, you know, save the turtles. They don't really care about our microbes though. You know, so let's talk a little bit more about the microbiome interaction with our hormone health. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know a lot about that, to be honest. I, I do know that exercise is a great way to improve the diversity and the function of the microbiome, um, but I'm not totally familiar with the connection with hormones and the microbiome. But there was several studies in rugby players and athletes and and comparing them to sedentary control so these are people that are you know exercising a ton and their stability and diversity of the microbiome and levels of keystone species that keep the microbiome intact so if you have to take antibiotics because you get a cold or something like that it, it was much more stable and diverse so this walking and everything we've been talking about does tie in directly in in that way and so i think that's a really cool thing like if people are, are taking antibiotics or you know, they have some gut issues or indigestion, like staying active is really good for keeping that stability going and also improving the levels of these gut hormones that impact metabolism, appetite, satiety. They're intimately connected to exercise. Mm -hmm. There's this drug, I I can't remember the the exact name, but it's been making some, it's a GLP-1 agonist. It's popular here in LA. Uh, A lot of like actors are taking this. So this is a gut hormone that's actually been used to treat diabetes. I think you inject it, single mind or something to that effect have you heard of this i haven't no a lot of people are talking about it now and and prescribing this but one way to increase this gut hormone is to chew your food to eat mindfully and exercise you know and of course protein and macros come into that but people are paying hundreds of dollars or even thousands of dollars for this drug because it's you have to get it injectable you gotta you know use an insulin syringe and all that well you can actually just increase levels of this hormone by um, with simple lifestyle strategies. And it's a great way to curb appetite. And that's why, you know, sometimes when you exercise, you're not really hungry right after. Why is that? Well, it's these gut hormones have been increased and there is crosstalk with the gut hormones and the gut bacteria. So to me, it's, it's all connected. And that's why it's not just one thing. We have to think about how holistically, how we live our life. Yeah. Yeah. So powerful. And I remember when leptin hit the scene, and it was just leptin versus ghrelin. It's very kind of superficial look at hunger and satiety. There's so much more that we know today, you know, with our satiety signals and hunger signals and, you know, GLP-1 and adiponectin and 
But the crazy thing is so many of them have to do with the gut, by the way, mm -hmm. but also specifically what you're putting in there are going to influence the output and performance of these various hormones. And so with this association with satiety, with um, metabolic performance, with our hormones, this is an intimate connection with what we're putting into our bodies. Yeah. Now, with that said, there's another, there's another precursor with this conversation about testosterone that we can put a little bit more attention on as well. Let's talk about DHEA. Yeah, I mean, this to me, taking DHEA has changed my life so much. Maybe that's why I'm like a little biased here, but this is a fascinating hormone that's made by our own adrenal glands. And it's the precursor to testosterone, to dihydrotestosterone, which helps us with muscle mass and so forth. It's also the precursor to estrogen and estrogen uh, derivatives. And it turns out that there is a, guess what, surprise, surprise, a decline in DHEA levels. And I think this is really important for people to consider because it's not on the radar. You know, a lot of guys, even they start to feel like I have low T, I go get tested. Okay, I'm gonna jump on testosterone. This should be addressed long before anyone considers that. And also peri and postmenopausal women should really consider testing their DHEA levels because it's the sole source of androgens for women as after menopause, because the ovaries do make a little bit of androgens, but DHEA is the main androgen um, that, that, well, it's an androgen precursor in both men and women. Really important. Um, I've been running this on clients for a number of years and levels are just in the tank, just like mm -hmm. with testosterone, like we talked about with that Israeli study. So um, please go to your doctor next time you do labs, run your, it's called DHA sulfate. So that's the form that is enumerated on the tests and so forth if you do a serum test. And most people are, are below the midline of the lab range. And again, that's a problem because if you don't have DHA, I mean, it's a little bit downstream from cholesterol, right? But cholesterol goes through these precursors, progesterone, and then you have DHA. You're, it's gonna be hard to make those androgens, the testosterone that we're talking about. So, but the cool thing about DHA is it not only is it indirectly impacting hormones, but it directly impacts the brain. It impacts mood, cognition. There's DHA receptors on immune cells. So surprise, surprise, people with low DHA levels have autoimmunity, have higher prevalences. You mentioned RA, rheumatoid arthritis, also uh, Hashimoto's. So this is a very powerful immune modulator. It's low DHA levels are linked with depression, linked with cognitive decline in elderly people. And so levels start to decline around age 30. It just naturally goes, it's like, like we talked about with fertility. It's like 1% per year decline. Doesn't sound like that much year over year, but you go 40 to 70, your levels at 70 are about 10% of what they were when you were 20. And the nice thing about DHEA is you can buy this over the counter, at least in the US. For some reason, it's illegal in Canada and in Australia and the UK. But the cool part about DHA, in addition to all the other things that I mentioned from cognition and you know, all that, um, is it can affect sleep in a favorable way because the ratio of DHA to, to cortisol changes. And as we get older, here's what's interesting about the adrenals is our cortisol levels actually increase over time and our DHA levels decrease. And it's the ratio that, that kind of creates the anabolic catabolic balance in the body. And so by maintaining and optimizing DHAs, you can preserve your lean muscle mass and have better sleep. And so there's some interesting research showing the difference between evening and morning cortisol impacts sleep quality. So if you have really high evening cortisol and low morning cortisol, you're gonna have like crappy sleep. And DHA has an ability to sort of um, antagonize cortisol signaling or decrease it. So for 
this is really common as you know, women and you know, going through menopause or postmenopausal sleep is like a major problem for them. Taking DHA at night can improve sleep by potentially decreasing this cortisol at night. So I don't know, I get super excited about this and it's yeah. not like it's expensive. There's all these supplements that people take, NAD, resveratrol, you fill in the blank with all these, like they cost a hundred bucks a month. DHA is like $9 a month, if that. So it's something that you can test, directly assess, and then start taking. And there's a little sort of formula. For men, it's about 10 milligrams per decade of life. 40 years old, 40 milligrams. For women, it's 75% less. So 40-year-old women would, would take like 10 milligrams of DHA. Start there. And I don't know. I notice like with muscle mass and strength, like I just turned 40 in August. I'm stronger now than I was when I was 18. And of course, that's my diet's better and this and that. But I, I really credit a lot of ability to recover from exercise with DHEA. So it, it's exciting stuff. And like no one is talking about it. It's weird yeah. that yeah. it's not out there. And you know what's so interesting? And by the way, DHEA, not DHA. Keep, keep in mind, there's a distinction here, which that's the fatty acid omega-3. This is something that's more involved in, you even said another dirty word in there. You said cholesterol, right? That conversion into our sex hormones. So this is along that pathway. Mm -hmm. But cholesterol is a seed kind of um, ingredient in this, in this equation. So would we see any issues if somebody's on a statin? I think so. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of downstream consequences, right? As you know, and I know you've talked a lot about this. Um, so yeah, people on statins, and that's why a lot of NFL players don't take statins, you know, because of this, because they know that like their testosterone is going to go down. They might notice compromised sports performance, rhabdomyolysis in the muscles and everything. So yeah, anyone who's been on like a vegan vegetarian diet uh, or has adrenal fatigue or adrenal issues, it's probable that their DHA levels are going to be low. And again, this is linked with recovery, linked with um, libido, all of this, it's all connected memory. And so I think that if people are trying to proactively lower their cholesterol, whether medications or diet, they might want to also test their DHEA levels to see where those are at, you know? There's something that, you know, for, for us to think about, and I wanna ask your opinion on this, being that DHEA is a precursor for testosterone and estrogen as well, you said something that jumped out to me that made me think of this question, which is you, you are already healthy. You're healthy. You eat, you eat healthy food. You're doing things that your genes expect you to do, you know, with your movement inputs, your sleep, all of these things. Now, what if we're, unfortunately, which we have this paradigm as a society looking for that pill, like this DHEA is my thing, but I don't have these other lifestyle factors mm. in place. And knowing that this is a precursor, what about aromatization? What about it going in the direction that we don't want it to go because we're eating a, a diet that's high in sugar and driving up insulin? Amazing point. I'm so glad you addressed this because yeah, there's a subset of people, for example, women with PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, there, there's a lot of underlying insulin resistance and hype, those elevated levels of androgens are causing the follicles to, the ovarian follicles to contain water, they get these cysts and so forth. So that's a subset of the, of the population that you definitely would not want to give DHEA to because their, their levels are already high. And like you said, men who are insulin resistant, overweight, they're you know, eating crappy food, 
their levels of aromatase uh, are increased. So yeah, you can yank that DHA down the wrong pathway. So maybe I did sort of make it sound a little bit easier than it, than it really is, but this is something that for people should consider when they're, and this is why you need to consider the whole picture, right? Yeah. Diet, exercise, nutrition, and all of that. And I guess maybe it's a good time to disclose. The reason why I'm taking it is I did anabolic steroids in college. So I did two cycles. And so my, since then, I've done everything I could, but my testosterone levels never got back to optimal, you know, um, just because they're, they're really suppressive on the whole HPA axis. And, and so that's why maybe I am an outlier in the sense that at 40, I really benefit from this. If someone doesn't have that experience, maybe they wouldn't need it as much or notice it. But I know a lot of guy friends who maybe they didn't do steroids, but they did some of the precursors back then. There was all these pro-hormones. Some of them actually had steroids in them. Remember at GNC, you could get some of these things. Yeah. And so there's a lot of, of that going on. And so I think that's another reason why some men might just have low testosterone because we've been screwing around with our hormonal systems. Um, sometimes didn't, didn't mean to, you went to GNC, bought the pro hormone and thought, yeah. oh, I'm going to get jacked with this. But those things are suppressive on the HPA axis as well. Yeah. Wow. You know, and it's so, there's so many different things out there now that again, there isn't a lot of really rigorous studies done on some of these, uh, compounds, because again, we're just wanting to get jacked and tan yeah. and like. This also is another point that we can make decisions in college that affect our entire lives, you know? And so, but a lot of young, like my, my son, my oldest son, he's 22. He just turned 22. And so like a lot of his friends are doing the thing, you mm -hmm. know, and he can see it, you know, there's a, it's, it's a so, certain culture around it, but so often you only see a minority achieve their fitness perspective. But even then you're always chasing the pump, mm -hmm. you know, whatever you can never be as big as you are uh, after post-workout in the gym, you know? And whenever you get to that place, just walking around, then you got, a, you got another pump and right. you're just chasing that pump, you know? But the thing is, so often um, they're using it as a crutch, like you just said, where we're leaning on this particular thing versus like you have all of these other pillars in place and then you add this thing in and it's like, it's a difference maker. And so I love that so much because I don't think a lot of us Think about, I love the idea of giving our body the ability to do a step in the process, right? This is why I like DHEA as being a, a resource versus somebody jumping right to, tea. you know, yeah, just yeah. straight T, you know? So give your body an opportunity, but most importantly, again, what are your life conditions to help to support your body doing what it already knows how to do? And so right now there's obviously a big movement of delaying aging, right? Extending our, our vitality. And there's some wonderful examples of it happening right now, being available. This episode is so important because we're painting the picture like it's bigger than that. You wanna be as healthy as possible to deal with all of the shit going on in our world mm -hmm. and the things that we're exposed to. Like this isn't just gonna be a walk in the park. Well, we need a walk in the park, you know what I'm saying? But this isn't gonna be a walk in the park for us to have that extended lifespan and vitality because we're living in a culture that is normalized sickness, right? And so we got to stack conditions in our favor for more than just that idealistic thing of living to 180 or whatever the case might be, but you want to be resilient right now. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I really love your work. And another recent invention that we 
unfortunately do not receive the education and so many young ladies, young girls are not getting this education are like, what are the downstream effects of this? What are some of the peer review data that we have on the likely ramifications of, on being on oral contraception, of being on the, quote, the pill? It's just passed out. It's just a normalized thing. It might not even be for a birth control purpose. It's for skin. It's for fill in the blank, but it's just getting handed out so often without the patient receiving true informed consent. Let's talk about this in part of this overall equation. We're talking about hormone health and fertility. Yeah, totally connected. And it's unfortunate how pervasive pill use is in, in women of reproductive age and also women who have gone through menopause. Um, I have some clients who have been on it because they, just, they don't, they're, they're fearful of coming off of it because they think that it's going to impact their mood. And before, because they didn't address their diet, their lifestyle, they had anxiety or, or mood swings. And so they, they, they feel this crutch. They want to stay on this. But it's important for women to understand that hormonal birth control is suppressing fertility. It's suppressing ovulation. It's taking the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and, and turning it offline in a sense because you're giving synthetic estrogens and progestins. These are not the bioidentical molecules that the body is making. So that in and of itself is a problem because these things can more powerfully impact the estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor. Um, they change mating behavior. This has been shown in animals and also humans because by, by basically mimicking the hormonal environment that would be linked with pregnancy, women choose different mates or would want to be around different people when they're pregnant compared to when they're trying to find a partner. And so that's the craziest thing is it, and we'll get into that in a minute, but it's important to understand that these are very suppressive on vitality. That's the bottom line. And so if women are having uh, any sort of symptoms, well, first of all, I think women should get off hormonal birth control, period, end of story, because of how they change the brain, how they change, uh, they tank testosterone levels in women. Uh, a systemic, uh, a meta-analysis looked at all these different studies looking at um, women who are on birth control compared to women who are naturally cycling. Uh, hormonal birth control users have a 67 or 61%, can't remember, Anyway, significant decline in testosterone, okay? So it's funny that you're taking this thing so you can have intercourse without condoms, but it's decreasing the very hormone that would cause you to be have interest in intercourse in and of itself. And, and for women, muscle's important for women as well, you know? Um, women lose muscle just like men. And, and women, you know, the more lean muscle mass women have, the higher their basal metabolic rate is, the more calories they'll burn at rest. So they shouldn't be excited about having a 61 or 67% drop in testosterone. So those are really important factors that I think are important uh, to recognize. Not only, moreover, uh, the link with strokes and also having blood clots, significantly higher amongst oral birth control users compared to non-birth control users in women. And we've been hearing, obviously, a lot more about clots and so forth. Uh, in the last couple of years, COVID is linked with coagulation disorder. So you take someone who might be already at genetically high risk, then you get them birth control, then they get an infection, they might be more prone to having a clot or having a stroke. And this stuff is really scary. So I think it's important for women to recognize this and, and make a concerted effort to transition off. It may not be easy, especially if you've been on it for 10 or 15, 20 years, like some people have, but to get that brain to go and add connection working properly is very important. And Again, the last thing that I think is pretty scary to think about is how 
taking oral contraceptives is, is changing the brain. We've seen viral videos of people who seemingly lack empathy and just say some crazy stuff, you know, picketing on the streets and so forth. Users of hormonal birth control compared to normal cycling women. This was just a study. I'll send it to you. It just came out a couple of weeks ago. Inhumans found that women on hormonal birth control, have, they don't have empathy or as much empathy. Parts of the brain, the prefrontal cortex is, doesn't get the same stimulation or nervous system intervention, uh, innervation. And so they don't have as much empathy or don't care as much. And I think that can impact your business, your relationships, your life. So it's impacting the brain and the brain is so plastic and malleable, right? So if you're impacting your brain negatively for 10, 15, 20 years, that can't be good in terms of preventing dementia, Alzheimer's, memory loss. So these things, um, they're problematic. And especially women who are thinking about marrying a man while they're on birth control, they should really go off beforehand to see if they are still feeling that person, for lack of a better word, because the it's called the major histocompatibility complex. The way that our, our cells are identified as our own cells. What research has actually shown is that when women are on hormonal birth control, they're more attracted to people who have very similar genetics to them. Now, some people might say, well, what's wrong with that? That could be linked with higher reproductive challenges and in the offspring, greater risk of health issues. So it turns out that there's some evolutionary advantage to Maybe if you're a Caucasian marrying someone who's of Asian descent or Latin American descent, because there's so much genetic difference there that it will reduce the risk of having uh, inbred related challenges that can lead to birth defects and lower survivability in the offspring. Now, when women um, are naturally cycling, again, they're more attracted to people who have gender differences and genetic differences. And I think that's an important point, especially if you're in an intimate relationship with a partner while you're on hormonal birth control and you're thinking about committing to marriage, to having kids, you would want to know if you are still attracted to the pheromones and the smells and the behaviors of that partner when you come off the pill. So this to me, I think has major societal implications that people should be aware of. And this is why there's a lot of great trackers like Natural Cycle, like Daisy, that allow, they, they uh, quantify uh, daily fluctuations in body temperature that indicate when ovulation is happening so that women can just use condoms, partners can use condoms during that period in their cycle. Yeah, yeah. Listen, this, the bottom line here is again, we've normalized something that is not normal for our evolution as a species. And now here's the thing, again, this could be two guys talking about this, Yeah. but in this chair, you know, having folks like Dr. Jolene Brighton, who's written the book Beyond the Pill, and looking at all of the health ramifications that women are simply not informed about. Birth control is a right, and, but the thing is, it's been flavored as kind of this one-size-fits-all thing, unfortunately, which what we, what we tend to do. Yeah. Instead of helping our young girls and women, because it's such also a taboo subject as well, to understand their bodies, to understand how their cycle works. I've, you know, being in clinical practice, I can't tell you how many times, you know, not even understanding just basics about the different phases and what hormones are being produced and the changes that are associated with that from just, not just the, 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 the physiology, but mentally and emotionally as well, depending on where you are. And what if you are educated about that and you can start to be and start to work your life within that versus fighting against your body, you know, so often is what we, what we have allowed to happen to our our, our citizens overall. And so 
you know, this is, there's so many different options. You just mentioned even just being aware of your cycle and when you're actually fertile, right? And so, well, look at how, how often are women getting educated about that? Young girls getting educated about that because it just seems like it's a, this is all the time, it's just gonna happen when in re the reality is very different. But again, having birth control that fits your life, that you feel is viable and safe for you, you have total right to do that. Mm -hmm. With that said, we have to be provided more education and more options because you, you said the thing that when I even asked you the question, that was the thing bubbling up in me the most. These young girls, when they're getting put on hormonal birth control, they're not being told that you're going to have a significantly higher risk of having a cardiovascular event mm -hmm. when I put this into your hand. Stroke, heart attack. This is not a joke. This is real. Like we're talking about manipulating the, the hormone pathways that control what your physiology is doing. This isn't just a small thing, in particular relating to your blood. So we can't just allow this to just go unchecked or without providing ample education around it. Can there be a place for oral contraception? Sure, everything has a place. But in our society, we keep leaning on the things that tend to hurt us in the long term. Oh, by the way, you mentioned this study. It's fascinating. This is, this is another one here. This is Trends in Ecology and Evolution. This is a journal looking at ecology and evolution as a species. The study revealed, quote, taking the oral contraceptive pill might significantly alter both female and male mate choice. This is wild. <laughs> Come on. Like, we don't think about that. How's it affecting our psychology? And there's so much more that's happening behind the scenes for our, our reality. Like we just kind of go with what we're sensing with our basic senses, but with your biochemistry, there's so much going on. We don't, we attribute that to other species, right? That the, you know, the species is in, is in heat or they're sending out a signal of fertility, right? The pheromones, we talk about it in our context and we think about Paul Rudd and Anchorman and Sex Panther, right? He's got this, He's got this incredible cologne that has a tiny bit of panther in it that, you know, 40% of the time it works every time, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's to trigger the pheromone response in the woman that he's looking for, right? We have this very superficial view of it that it's just, oh, it's just this thing, it's that thing. What happens when we're throwing on all of these exotic combinations of body sprays and colognes and you know, and, and utilizing hormonal birth control is throwing off this whole pathway. So it's just things to think about. Not to say you can't put on your Jokar, no why? My stepfather used to use Brute. Mm. I don't know if you remember that. It was like, it always come in this package. Like my mom kept buying him that shit. I don't even know if he liked it, but I just attribute that smell to him. But the, the thing is for us just to, just to start to inquire and question what we've normalized. Totally. And this informed consent and, and, and knowing that there are these consequences. And if you know that, like I, I fully recognize when I did steroids that, you know, I might not be fertile or might have these issues and so forth. But I think, like you said, a lot of young girls, uh, young women that, that do this, they're, they're not told about this, just like they're not told when they get breast implants that it's linked with forming, you know, um, a biofilm and creating all the scar tissue around the breast. And it might be linked with chronic fatigue, like symptoms and cancer and all of that. Um, we need to be fully aware and more transparent about um, uh, in terms of uh, before we decide to embark on these endeavors. But I think it speaks to a greater issue in society that 
that I see, we're so good at masking our symptoms. Oh, you have allergies? Take the antihistamine. Like, come on, you can't sleep? Take the, uh, take the sleeping pill. Oh, you have troubles uh, digesting food? Just suppress the stomach acid. We need to look at these signs, even depression. If you're anxious or depressed, uh, you don't like, you feel anxious at your job, it might not, not be the right job. You might not be in the right relationship. You might not be living your meaning and your purpose. And I think that is important for people to look at these symptoms, even injuries. You have low back pain, okay, well, you, you might be doing something wrong. What is that? That could be, a, uh, it's, our bodies are trying to tell us something. So if you're getting on a pill or a whatever because you have headaches and bad menstrual cycle uh, and, and really heavy periods, okay, there might be a reason why your periods are heavy. Address the issue because masking it will only probably increase your risk like you talked about, having a stroke or heart attack or some other unknown health issue down the road. And that's where Western medicine is not really good at, right? Western medicine is great. You get in a traumatic car accident, like you, you want Western medicine, but trying to figure out after you've had years of masking symptoms, it's not really good there. And so um, reframing how we view allergies, you know, heavy periods, um, low libido, try to figure out what that is and what is your body trying to tell you and make some tweaks you know, in your diet, lifestyle, sleep, nutrition, exercise. Yeah, yeah, and it's taking on the, the belief or the mantra, the modus operandi that everything is figure outable and you know, our bodies are intelligent and there is something far beyond the this, this just happens paradigm that modern medicine has ushered in. You know? So when we're having these abnormal symptoms that are inconvenient or painful, yes, they're absolutely happening, but there is a reason your body is intelligent. And so having more inquiry, if they're telling you that it just happens, that's the problem. You need to find a new doctor, mm -hmm. you know? And this is part of being in this community and your community, which there's some intermingling going on, you know, uh, of being empowered and educated so that you can be informed, you can ask better questions, you can be empowered in your choices. Part of this process is we can no longer outsource our bodies to other people and the decisions about our bodies to other people based on what we talked, we, we were talking about this before we even got started, this perception of expertism, mm -hmm. right? They've got this particular education in this focused area of, of, of medicine. Well, in reality, this hyper-focus on this treatment, we'll just say, you know, we, both of us have colleagues who are world-class cardiologists and they, they know so much about the cardiovascular system and the arteries and the veins and capillaries and the, the construct of your blood, within that education where they taught that all of those things I just mentioned, your heart, your veins, your arteries, your blood, that they're made of food, that all of those things are literally made from the food that their patient has eaten. If they don't, if they're not consciously aware of that, they're wildly miseducated about how to help that person. And so this expertism where we have this focus oh you went to school a long time to learn about a certain thing what if you learned about the wrong shit for many years and you become very good at that with that said also being world class at if there's a breakdown if there's a massive breakdown that's who we want you want the surgery in those hands or the medicine prescribed in those hands if there's a serious breakdown but that's what we're good at that's what we're trained for is emergency medicine not for wellness not for wellness and the results speak for themselves we have, the, we have the highest rates of heart disease, stroke, Alzheimer's, obesity, diabetes, lung disease, kidney disease, on and on. 
I've ever seen before in recorded human history right now in the supposedly most advanced society. How are we at the most advanced society on one hand, or we have access to every bit of information at our fingertips, and yet we are the sickest, most dysfunctional. There's big, clearly a break here. Yeah, big disconnect. Well, it, I mean, the thing that I think people don't recognize is that information changes so quickly and you could be the best cardiologist in the whole wide world, but that doesn't make you the best, you know, uh, that doesn't mean your understanding of metabolic medicine is going to be the the best that it ever is, right? So uh, information changes so quickly in the practice of medicine. I used to sell products to doctors and oftentimes they're so busy. A lot of them have the best of intentions. Like they go to medical school to help people, um, but they're so busy charting, doing insurance reimbursements, dealing with Medicare and things like that. They don't have time to stay up on this stuff and things change so quickly. And the patient volume that is put on them just to keep their doors open. Yeah. Or to keep the, you know, the, the um, standards or requirements for their hospital intakes just so that they can remain insured and remain with the job or keep their office open. That's added to the equation as well. It's a, it's a big burden, you know? So it's important um, to have these type of conversations where we're breaking down recent studies. Um, one thing I wanted to mention, because you mentioned blood and the cardiology and so forth. One thing, we've talked about the problems with low T, but as men increase their testosterone, their blood might get a little thicker. It's natural, like testosterone, and this is why a lot of athletes will actually take testosterone in the Tour de France, it increases what's known as blood viscosity. That can be helpful if you're Lance Armstrong or racing in the Tour de France, but if you're just hanging out, you know, you're in dad mode and, and not exercising a lot, that can increase your um, car cardiovascular disease risk. So for men I in postmenopausal women donating blood once or twice a year, it's a, a really low input that you just go and it's unfortunate, you gotta get a needle put in your arm and so forth to donate the blood. It takes like 15 minutes, but it can dramatically reduce your risk of heart disease by lowering uh, iron overload and, and ferritin levels and decreasing the thickness or the viscosity of blood. So I just wanted to mention that because it's related to this hormone conversation. Absolutely, absolutely. And I wanna give a big thank you, first of all, to you and you being a leader in this field. And both of us, we went through tra traditional education, you know, going to a university and also seeing the pitfalls and the m miseducation that can take place but also opening that up. And we have some wonderful people in the field now of health and wellness and medicine, uh, physicians who are now shifting gears to looking at more functional uh, means of medicine and integrative medicine and starting to understand again, like the, the body itself, when we're looking at my patient's liver or their brain, that it's made from the food that they've eaten, but more so understanding to stay up to date on where we're really at, it, it's another full-time job. And so, like you said, everything is changing so quickly. And this is why you are so important because there are many wonderful people who are in healthcare who rely on us to keep them up to date with this new information, right? But here's the interesting part about all of it. It still time and time again, keeps circling back to the principles that our genes expect from us. Mm -hmm. The movement inputs, the food inputs, the avoidance of toxicity, right? And we're just finding new and creative ways. Great scientists are asking questions on how to adhere to these things and add another layer of belief to get modern medicine to employ those things. But here's the biggest catch. When we do that, we start to make pharmaceutical companies irrelevant. When we do that, we start to pull away the need for the sick care industry as it's constructed today to be as lucrative. We have a over $4 trillion a year 
healthcare system here in the United States. The four, like we can't even understand how much money that is. It's just, it's not even, we, it, it's, it's so beyond, beyond our, even just a billion. A billion dollars is very difficult for us to rationalize or understand as a, as a human. And so $4 trillion, and yet we have the worst health outcomes. Like, again, there's a mis, mismatch. And I think the first step is being able to take a meta perspective and look at this mismatch. Like, wait, what? How is that possible? How do we have so much invested and yet we're, we're so sick? And are we, is the job that we're doing right now as healthcare workers, is it showing good results? Are we, at the end of the day, I'm a huge, thankfully, I don't know if it's nature or nurture, but I'm so, I'm a results oriented person. I don't care what the thing is. So often as you, you know this as well, we get so caught up on the thing instead of the result and getting, getting infatuated with the result. Because when we focus on the thing, I think that makes us more dogmatic, mm -hmm. right? Because we get so attached to the thing that we'll justify and explain away the result, right? And so for me, I don't care if it's a pharmaceutical drug or if it's olive oil. If we're getting this particular result, because I have to be open to all of them being effective. And that's another thing I admire about you too, is that you're cut from the same cloth. It's not about the thing, it's about the result and us being a healthy species. Mm -hmm. And so I want people to get more into your universe, of course. Can you let everybody, you got one of the best YouTube channels out there and uh, let people know where to connect with you. Sean, really appreciate that. And, and it's always great to talk with you about these issues and so forth and all the courage that you've expressed over the last couple of years uh, to, to really speak your truth is, is really admirable. So appreciate you having me on. Um, yeah, so my my channel is High Intensity Health. So if people like breakdowns, I throw in a little satire here and there, uh, but focus more on metabolic health and fitness and everything like that. Uh, high Intensity Health, if if you, uh, yeah, if you want to check me out, that's the best place. Awesome, man. Again, I, just also, what do you have in store, man? Like, what are you, what are you focused on right now? What are you, what do you have cooking for us? Yeah, um, you know, I'm kind of a nerd about muscle. I've been obsessed with like, as a little kid, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Van Damme were like my idols, right? So I'm working on this book all about muscle. Um, and I've been interviewing a lot more fitness people to like get their perspective, like what is working for different people? And I think understanding the context, you know, um, I'm just come to realize after interviewing and, and talking with all these people that, have, that like yourself, you like you get active with your kids, you're outside lifting, you got kettlebells on the deck, all of that, right? People who move their muscles are just healthier. And so I'm trying to encourage people to get back to it because I see so many folks, um, you know, and I love yoga and Pilates, but, but stimulating the muscle with resistance training. So really trying to unpack that. And that enables us to eat more calories, to have a little bit more flexibility in the diet, to like go off the rails over the holidays and not gain 20 pounds a little bit. So that's what I'm excited about. Um, have a lot of like content in that regard coming out. So awesome. More science of, of muscle. You know, that's exciting, man. Well, again, yeah. thank you so much for being you. You're one of my favorite people in the health space and uh, can't wait to see what you do next, man. Of course, we're here to support you. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate you having me on. My pleasure. Mike Mutzel, everybody. Thank you so very much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. This is one to share with your friends and family. You can send this directly from the podcast app that you're listening on. And of course, you could take a screenshot of this episode and tag me. I'm at Sean Model and tag Mike as well. He's at metabolic underscore Mike on Instagram. And just let everybody know what you thought about this episode. It really does mean a lot. 
And we've got some incredible masterclasses, world-class guests coming very, very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care, have an amazing day, and I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.